Hi, and welcome to the Central Work Script Club. I'm Patricia Milton, and this time, our script was Jesse Potterfeld's Years in the Hundreds, which opened Central Work's 27th season in 2017. Jesse's plays have been developed at Central Works, the Sewanee Writers' Conference, and the Kenyan Playwrights' Conference. Jesse received a BA from New College of Florida, where he studied art history and creative writing before spending much of his 20s as a touring musician with the art punk band Graffiti Death Threat. Later, he co-founded Wingtip, a social club based in downtown San Francisco, where he also directed arts programming for members and the general public. Jesse now lives and writes in New York City. Jesse, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I just love this play. I had the opportunity to be in the Central Works Writers Workshop while you were developing it. It was such an exciting development process. And I always was so interested with the character exploration that you did, as well as the relationships inside the play. And I wanted to ask, what was your inspiration for writing the play? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think the inspiration, well, I guess it's more comes from a story. When I when I was in my 20s, I lived with I lived with a woman who was in her 80s as, as kind of a roommate. And then a few years after that, in my late 20s, I lived with another woman who, who was in, in her 80s and, and as a roommate situation, both when I was in Los Angeles. And and it was it was really an interesting experience to kind of have these everyday experiences with, you know, your elders, you know, sharing dinner responsibilities and cleanup responsibilities and the shopping. And, you know, I'd get home from work and we'd we'd talk about life. And, and you know, my partner was overseas. We'd talk about love and relationships and, and their, you know, husbands of the, of the past and old boyfriends. And it, it was just this kind of a you know, very enlightening moment for me to kind of have these elder women kind of uh, become fully fleshed out real people in my mind and not just like the, you know, the grandmothers of friends, you know, these these people who kind of, you know, lingered in the in the kitchens or, or kind of were the matriarchs at, at, you know, Thanksgiving, that sort of thing. And so it was this, this moment where I started to think of these people as... Uh, as, like how can I get them onto the, into the theater as like starring roles, and then from there, the play just kind of really came out of two things. One, once I kind of settled on this idea of twins, I kind of really wanted to look at sibling relationships that were were kind of weirdly intimate, and uh, you know, and explore that. And then and then I also wanted to explore the relationship of a kind of a younger man and an older woman, and just kind of think think through those kind of so there was really the big ideas that drove the play that then uh you know as as you know because you were there we we workshopped it a lot and and kind of I went in a lot of different directions until I kind of settled on the the final take Mm -hmm. well I think it's so interesting because I see a lot of plays that have older folks in them and they really range the range that they're kind of allowed to be their role in society seems to be really limited but you know I'm older so I'm like hey wait a minute so I just I really uh appreciate what that play 
brings as far as expanding the role of what an older person could be. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was, that was great when we were casting because you, you got, you know, these, these two actors who were veterans in the industry getting these really meaty roles. And, and, uh, and I think that was a lot of fun for all of us, you know, playing with this idea of these kind of marginalized people, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, older people feel that way, you know, feel kind of let down by society or, or kind of sequestered or excluded and whatnot. So kind of really centering them and then also exploring those feelings was, was kind of, it was pretty important. Mm-hmm. So let me ask about the twin aspect of it. The twin aspect of your play is so fascinating. There's a number of times when the stage picture Mm-hmm. is a mirror image. So the t- the two women stand on stage as a mirror image. Do you have a particular affinity for twins? Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think my life has been kind of peppered with twins. I, I had uh, well, my best friend in childhood was a twin. My my grandmother is an identical twin, which was, you know, huh. which was, was very you know her her sister didn't live in the same state but she would come to visit and and if we ever visited grandma's house and you know walked in the kitchen and and you think you're talking to your grandmother and you're talking to you know an, an almost stranger it's it sticks with you you know sticks with you for the rest of your life <laughs> that yeah, that kind of startling like uh, oh wait this is not grandma though she looks exactly like my grandmother so things like that after college i lived with uh, uh some roommates who were twin sisters and then uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Marion and Vivian Brown in San Francisco. They were kind yes. of famous twin sisters who dressed the same, and, and they were in some commercials. They did some acting work and whatnot, and and they would walk around downtown San Francisco when I when I worked downtown, and they were basically local celebrities. And so, so I guess it's twofold. There's there's one I have a lot of experience with actual twins and kind of how those relationships are real and how there's there's kind of an intimacy there that maybe you know you know regular siblings don't have there's just some some sort of connected tissue there that that interested me but then there's obviously all the cultural baggage right there's the the stories of twins and the the the, this idea that twins can understand each other better or can feel each other's feelings or even physically if you hurt one the other one can will be feel pain and and those types of that type of uh pseudoscience or cultural baggage or storytelling was also something fun to kind of bring into the play as Mm -hmm. as a way to kind of shortcut audience understanding and, and and play up the characters and also just bring some humor into the into the play yeah it was really fascinating in years in the hundreds a central relationship in the play is, and I'm going to say it, an older woman, it's Jessie. She's in mm-hmm. her 70s. And Marcus, the bookmobile man, who's in his late 20s. And yep. when I think of lit- literature, and, may, you know, I don't know all literature, but when I think of literature mm-hmm. um, and films and so forth, I th- can think of Harold and Maude, which is a older woman, younger man, and uh, Cherie by Colette, mm-hmm. uh, which is the same. But there, there's very few, actually, especially compared to the opposite May-December romance. Yeah. So, and what happens is they treat the older woman, younger man as it is a fraud, <laughs> 
right, uh, right. perpetrated on the woman, right? Like the guy is a scoundrel or whatever. Sure, um, sure. Or it's a joke. So can you talk about your intention in trying to present in successfully, actually, I thought, presenting this type of relationship as both sincere and erotic? Yeah, I, I love I, I love talking about this. I mean, I think ultimately I wanted to create a play that showed kind of a diversity of intimacies. So kind of these, you know, non-normative intimacies. So maybe, a, you know, a sisterhood that is, you know, you know slightly bonded in, in a way that's like intense, you know. And, and the relationship between Marcus and Jesse, to me, you know, I really wanted to make sure all the relationships were held, like, were, were seen as sincere. The, the purpose of that was because I wanted to uh, d- demonstrate how different people fall in love with one another or are turned on by one another. And I didn't want to, to use it as, uh, you know, a spectacle or, a, you know, theatrical trope to kind of, you know, you know I, I wanted to really create sincere relationships that were non-normative. And it's twofold, right? There's There's this part of it where, you know, Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles are now dating and she's 10 years older and like, that's a thing, you know, that's like a big deal. Um, and, and like, I don't understand how it's still a big deal, but it is, you know, so I kind of wanted to, um, touch on that point. And so what I've done is, you know, one of the things I learned talking to my roommates who were in their, you know, early eighties was that every generation, you know, thinks they've invented sex you know, thinks they've invented kink, thinks they, th- that they are the ones who are kind of c- c- carving this path. But really, it's the elders, you know, who are all knowing, literally, they've, they've been there and done that before. So it's, it's interesting to uh, point that out, you know, that women in their 70s are sexually active, women in their 70s have desire, and, and that the relationships can be sin- sincere, and that everybody uh, is different. So, Ultimately, that's kind of what I was getting at, just showing this kind of these erotic relationships in in ways that uh, might not not like shock an audience, but might make an audience think that things weren't as strange as they seemed. You know, things that might be strange at first by the end seemed, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, the you know the way that Adam played Marcus was this kind of earnest naivete and I think he pulls it off so by the end of the play you do you do believe he's he's sincere but I think yeah I think uh, it's it's toying with the audience's own you know sense of stigma or sense of what's right in the world and then hopefully opening up some potentials you know for how we can relate to one another going forward absolutely well I think the other thing that's so interesting the other relationship in the play the relationship between Inez and Jesse it's such an entangled relationship and over the course of the play through revelations that we get and through this introduction of Marcus as the kind of disrupting element, it becomes unentangled and Jesse is able to pull away. Can you talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. their strange, strange love story? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ultimately, I view the play as a love story between Jesse and Inez, um, you uh-huh. know, and, and obviously that is explored and just the the depth of feeling these two sisters have for one another. You know, they've, they've, they've 
created a life with one another in a home for 50 years and and they you know that that's being disrupted now but you can't take away the fact that they've had this intensely intimate life with one another um longer than most marriages long you know and it's this love that is is unique but i i don't know how unique it is you know i don't i don't i i don't think that you know relationships our most intimate relationships need to be a romantic or, or be with our life partners. I mean, we can have lots of intimacies with lots of different people. And, and I was trying to get at this, this, uh, you know, trying to make it as entangled and complex as possible and make the leaving feel even more than a divorce, you know, feel like a death, feel like a, uh, you know, an escape, feel like, um, feel tragic in, in a sense. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I wanted their their relationship to be sincere. I wanted it to to be full of love, but also full of uh, kind of misun you know misunderstanding and complexity, competition. Yeah, there's betrayal. I mean, I think it's so interesting how they're what kind of shoved them into that house was a yeah. betrayal on both their parts. Sure. And then it takes a betrayal, you know, or what what's seen as a betrayal to get one of them to be able to leave. And it's right. so interesting to me that they, here are two characters who were in lockdown, right? For 50 right. years. <laughs> it's, right. the, it's the same thing. It's the not being able to leave the house and being with someone i mean i just think it would be very interesting to see that play today and see the kinds of connections we could make yeah i, I would love a director to to take that angle um i was rereading it you know during during the pandemic and kind of stumbled across that thought you know which is just like wow these these people literally can't leave their house you know for, for whatever reason and, and i'm like I can't leave my house and I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck in the house with one other person. And, and, you know, and it started to become, um, it felt even more claustrophobic, but it also, I, I began to even understand them more because I was kind of living like them, you know? So, you know, you get into different patterns. If, you know, if you're lucky enough to be living with somebody you like in a house during a pandemic, it's awesome to, you know, figure out how to bring joy back into the house with, you know, different chores or different cooking or different types of game nights or different, you know, just things that like you normally wouldn't do because you're, you know, you do the routines of our lives, you know, leaving the house, going to work, coming back, you know, sitting at your desk writing, those types of things that, that kind of become less important when you're in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, I, I, I really liked reading this again in proximity to, to just the, you know, the feeling of, of, uh, not hopelessness, but just kind of feeling of, uh, being stuck. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask if your other works deal with this idea, ideas of identity. Are you drawn to that as a theme? And are there other themes that come up again in your work? Yeah, I, I think identity definitely is important. Um, I would say that the way I think of identity is more in terms of how it's negotiated, you know, in terms of how identity is you know, in the ways in which it's fluid, in the way in which it's changing, um, you know, so there's, you know, like, there's a moment in the play um, where Jesse kind of her identity switches from being the wrongdoer to being the wronged. And it's, and it's that pivotal moment we were kind of touching on where all of a sudden J Jesse kind of 
understands something about her life that she's never understood before. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of do deal with identity, but I, I love to deal with identity at those moments, you know, the, the, the where we kind of wake up and uh, we feel changed or 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 during the times where something is changing within us or something is changing because it's relational. So I'm, I'm less interested in just focusing on identity with a capital I, but I, I, I definitely deal with that a lot. And, and in terms of other themes, um, you, you know, something that plays out in this play and, and a lot of other plays is, you know, memory obviously looms large um, mm-hmm. and kind of more specifically how we narrativize our memories, you know, the stories we tell about our memories and that that kind of in order to create meaning and 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 then all the obstacles inherent in that so you know you have your false memories and you have your competing memories and and you know all those things that kind of boil up uh in a plot and are are lovely to kind of play with um you you know instead of kind of going back to a flashback where the audience is seeing a flashback you you kind of go back to a memory and you you disentangle it from multiple character viewpoints. And so the audience isn't necessarily aware really of what the truth is. They're just kind of uh, going along for this ride of, of, of thinking about, of, you know, memory and, and how it uh, is complicated. Yeah. I have six brothers and sisters <laughs> and it's so interesting to just pick a memory <laughs> Right. <laughs> and talk to everybody about it. And you get, of course, you know, seven different sure. stories. I mean, so. I, yeah, I come from a big family, too. <laughs> so you, you get those, you know, it seems like the memories everybody remembers are really the stories, right? You've told right. over and over and over again. Right. So, of course, the play evolved during workshops. And yes. then, of course, you went into rehearsal. And then you add, you have this great cast and you have... The folks from Central Works who helped develop the play. So, did things change? What? What? Was there anything that that perhaps the actors contributed, or somebody that you remember contributed that you can tell us about? How much time do we have? Do we have <laughs> hours upon hours? Yeah. No. I mean, I I would say, you know, I mean, to me, to me, the Central Works process is like this and I don't know if you feel this way as well but it's like this beautiful process for playwrights right you you don't turn over your script and then show up on opening night to see what they've done with it you you know you're there for this kind of uh, intense reading process that's over many days Mm -hmm. where you're you're reading the script together and then there's this uh you know obviously that's that's kind of before rehearsal right and so then you you know you get into rehearsal with these these incredible actors who are helping you shape the work still because it's it's you know it's it was a brand new play so we did a lot of work what i would say trimming the fat um making it's you know obviously it's a very wordy play so we were able to trim that trim down redundancies things that i wasn't seeing but things that the actors you know who who were already kind of embodying the characters would just be kind of say you know you know i've said this before let's cut it or you know I've hinted at this before, or I can I can do it physically. You know those those types of things mm-hmm. were amazing. Um, I would say the the most incredible thing was that you know and and Gary the director and I had this conversation beforehand, which was like okay we're gonna you know we're not gonna be able to cast identical twins. So how do you do that, right? How do you how do you pull off a play where an audience has to quote unquote believe they're identical twins? You know, so 
So luckily, we got Tamar and Anne, and they were able somehow to pull that off. Two non-siblings, two non-identical twins were able to kind of match each other's emotional states and physicalities and, you know, the, the shifting dynamics of the play. They were able to, you know, there's there's moments where they have to assume each other's character. There's mm-hmm. there's moments where they're they're thinking what each other is thinking. And then there's moments where they're unable to think what each other's thinking, and that's distressing. And it's all these kind of things that they were able to create that I think really worked to kind of sell the idea of identical twins quickly and and throughout the play, so that that almost became a non-issue. And I I would say that was like one of the the biggest issues going into it. Like, is this going to work? That was wonderful to have actors that that are that talented um you know adam i had mentioned you know his kind of earnest naivete before but he was also was really funny you know so he kind of (laughs) gave a lot of he brought a lot of humor to the play and made this 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 young lusting guy kind of believable just with you know kind of like this dopey believability that he had you know i mean there's a part of the writing process and i don't know if you write this way or not but where you kind of like august wilson did this he would he would say things like you know i i does this does this monologue belong to this character? And he would just like pick it up and move to somebody else and, <laughs> and kind of like a collage. He would, he would move things around on the page and just see where it fit the best. And, and that's definitely a good writing practice. You know, you're, you're, you know, sometimes you write something that needs to be in the play, but it's, you, you have it in the wrong character's mouth. And I found that like, once the actors were involved, a, they were going to tell you that something was wrong for them. But also, you couldn't take away something that they needed either. You know, once they embody these characters, it's it's kind of like they're going to own it as well. Yes. Yeah, and that's wonderful. I mean, that's a that's a great a great. It's I mean, that's what theater is is. That's why it's so beautiful is that you, it's collaborative and and things are kind of always evolving. I also wanted to shout out Gary in the sense uh, the director of the play in the sense that he. What he did, he did something very unique, which was uh, speed up the play. You know, it was kind of a, you know, like I said, it's a wordy, kind of meandering piece. And, and he, he was able to kind of like pick up the pace so that it unraveled almost in real time. And so the audience was kind of discovering things about the play as the characters were discovering it. And, and mm-hmm. because there was a lot of, you know, there was some whodunit and there was some kind of backstory that, that was happening. He was able to figure out a way for the audience not to linger on the backstory and just kind of push it along at a clip. I think that really helped the play, kind of the audience just kind of be always racing to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And it was gripping. I mean, I think the momentum makes it gripping and makes the audience work to stay yeah. with it. Yeah, absolutely. Jesse, you write fiction also. Mm-hmm. For the page as well as the stage. So can you talk about that and how that's different from playwriting? Obviously not as collaborative. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's that's a big part of it, right? You know, so I've always been writing, but I kind of uh, post or kind of mid-college, I, I went on this long kind of music career where I was writing music and, oh, uh-huh. and touring bands and making records and, and doing that kind of thing. So writing, but writing lyrics, writing in, in music and in that way. And it was, you know, obviously if anyone has been in a band, it's it's band practices and shows and rehearsal and, and touring on a bus together and those types of things. And when I got to fiction was kind of post that, you know, I went from this really collaborative kind of 
music scene to me sitting at a desk for a few years writing a novel. And at the end of that experience, all I wanted to do was kind of collaborate with people again. Share mm-hmm. work that wasn't finished, share ideas, be kind of almost involved in a scene or a community. And that's kind of how I found my way to theater, which I feel is my is like my preferred medium. You know, I really like to write plays. I really like to, I really like everything comes with it, which is, which is seeing other people's work, uh, talking to people about their work, talking to all the types of people who are involved in putting a play onto a stage. It's just, you know, it's not just a writer and an editor. It's, it's this family. It's this large group of people who come together to make something happen that's live and it and it's kind of happens every night you know um and so that to mm-hmm. me is is mm-hmm. uh kind of the sweet spot so do you have any favorite playwrights yeah i mean yeah i think i don't know do you have you have favorite playwrights right mm-hmm. we all have the we all have our heroes it's it's a hard question to answer just because there's so many so i'm just going to i'm going to pull out like the my heroes first you know so I would say playwrights like Carol Churchill Susan Laurie Parks and Tony Kushner are kind of like my living heroes you know is what I'd say like those playwrights to me are you know a generation or more before me Mm -hmm. but they are alive and still working and doing incredible work I love lots of different writers and theater makers and dancers and musicians I I like you know Ann Carson comes to mind Claudia Rankine, uh, Matthew Goolish is, is a writer and performer that I love. Mm-hmm. I saw The Octoroon by Brandon Jacob Jenkins at Berkeley Rep and loved that and, and then just started to read all his work. He's, oh, yeah. He's, uh, Jacob yeah. Jenkins. He's amazing. Taylor Mack, who's who's a Bay Area favorite, but uh, uh, I love their work. Uh-huh. I mean, I could go on. <laughs> You know, there's there's so many, as you know. There's there's so many you forget and then you yeah. find again. There's so many you love one of their plays and hate another one of their plays. You know, it's it's yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I love reading scripts. I remember I was oh, one time I was in the airport mm-hmm. and I had a book of scripts, collected work yeah. for somebody or other, <laughs> and a woman came running up to me and said, "Is that a book of scripts? I love reading scripts." I said, you and I are the only ones in this whole airport, but yes, I love it. Oh, me too. Me too. I mean, there is something, there is something unique about it, right? Because you're, you know, I really love staged readings too, you know, where it's not really being acted out, but actors are giving it something more. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I really love the, the use of imagination, right? You know, your own, you know, your own as an audience member or as a reader, just kind of packing it full of your own ideas too, you know, it's really a... a collaborative form of reading yeah. you know, that I that I love what have you been writing have you been what have you been working on if anything <laughs> yeah. I am writing a play I'm writing kind of I would say the biggest most complicated play I've ever written so kind of went into it uh, before the pandemic but really got into it during the pandemic and uh, you, you know just decided don't worry about producibility don't worry about you know what it will be just just kind of go big and so yeah it's a it's a, looking like a five-act play with a, a dozen characters and and uh it's about a family that's returning kind of to their hometown years after a violent conflict forced them out so it deals with genocide but it also deals with that kind of the complexities of of a city kind of going through a truth and reconciliation uh, campaign so uh-huh. whenever i talk about it and that's about all i say 
everyone is just kind of gets sad and feels like it's very bleak but I'm trying to make it it's not a comedy but I'm trying to not make it bleak I'm trying to kind of talk about resilience and how we find joy in our kind of communities and in our chosen families and in our families and kin and whatnot even when healing is kind of impossible deals with you know reconnecting people and it takes place on land that that was was part of a mass grave and so you know, one of the things that's been difficult is is kind of dealing with this pandemic and kind of dealing with fiction, almost fiction caught in the headlights of this pandemic where, you know, New York had, you know, blocks from my house had, you know, basically morgues in trailers on the streets and a lot of people buried kind of on an island, you know, off Manhattan that, mm-hmm. that is kind of a big kind of common grave. So I've kind of been tapping into hopefully... The other side of it, you know, how we come out of this and how we kind of reconcile these tragedies, but also try to kind of be optimistic again and, and find happiness again and wow. that sort of thing. So we'll see. Some I, I'm blanking on who said it now. Somebody said that theater is, I mean, I'm sure lots of people have said it, but the person I'm thinking said theater is kind of a, is our like rehearsal of death. Hmm. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, a way for us to not just like process things, but also kind of rehearse and get ourselves comfortable with certain ideas about our mortality and about our futures, you know, since we're all, we are all going to die. I, th- I think that there's always people saying there's going to be too many of these plays or too many of those plays, you know, but really it's, there always be good plays and there always be plays that don't hit the mark, you know? So I, I think that, it, you know, as long as we're writing about things we really feel versus just trying to kind of fit a niche, I think it's, it's, that's that's the the beauty of it right definitely trying to think through trauma and how we all kind of persevere from our, from our traumas both collectively and individually you know mm-hmm. yeah well you, you you know you were in new york which i think was maybe hardest hit of all the us you know simply because of the early this sh- yeah, the sheer size of the city and the density. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that must have been very difficult. Yeah, I mean it. It, it was in my face. Uh, for, I think for many, you know, it was in our face as New Yorkers for a long time before kind of the rent, the rest of the country then had to deal with it. You know, I had a lot of people calling me for weeks asking me how I was doing before I was calling them. You know, to ask them how they're doing. Yeah, it was, it was tough. We, you know, we lived right on Broadway, just just south of the hospital uptown, and so I, there was there were sirens twenty four hours a day for weeks. I mean, it was it was a lot. It just the kind of sonic toll that took was a lot. Um, I have to say, I was very lucky. I mean, I, I did I did lose a job at the beginning of the pandemic. I was laid off from a job, so um, that was abrupt. But I mean, I, I think also, you know being laid off when when everyone is laid off is a little less hit to the ego you know it's kind of everyone you know kind of gets together and and uh tries to figure out how to fill their time together on the upside you know i'm very lucky my partner is a college professor so so we're stable we had health insurance we Mm -hmm. were able to uh yeah we were able to eat good meals and cook and and I, i think that you know it's been tough not seeing family and not seeing friends but uh most of my kind of friends and family have have remained healthy or have recovered well um 
That's great. And you know, New York was New York was also wonderful, cathartic when we were banging pots and pans every night at seven p.m. You know, to applaud the hospital uh-huh. workers uh, and essential workers. You know, and that was, um, you know, it's kind of corny the first night when somebody does it, but then like just the repetition of it. You know, night after night at seven, and then you know doing it from your house and then doing it from the street and then walking through different blocks and hearing people do it. It was just this like really moving time. And I think, yeah, it, it was super important. And, and, uh, and then New York also had this great amount of protests and yes. community fridges and, you know, online events. And, and it's just, you know, so I, I, I feel lucky. You know, the pots and pans, it seemed to me that during the lockdown we needed we needed different rituals you know i think people mm-hmm. even like within their home you know we're going to bake bread or <laughs> whatever right, it was right. but we needed these these tangible kind of rituals that we could do that really became very meaningful i think to people mm-hmm. and it made you like you really had to consider things that maybe we hadn't considered before you know with this change and i don't want to you know i don't want to lose that i don't want to get back to you know routine so no no it's true i mean i I think about that in terms of like being outside you know i spent a lot of time outside Mm -hmm. a lot of walking a lot of running along the hudson and it wasn't you know i was never alone out there i mean the the neighborhoods were just out on the streets and so i'm really hoping that stays a part of New York and I'm really hoping it doesn't all go back to just being in bars and restaurants and movie theaters you know and theaters you know I hope there's still I hope there's more kind of entertainment outside and and parties outside and you know I hope we can kind of keep eating outside and and picnicking outside and and those types of things exercising outside you know that's something I, I really hope happens because uh it helped me survive the the pandemic uh, I'm sure it was good for lots of folks yeah, Jesse, do you have a website or can people see your work? Uh, my website is just my my name, jessepotterville.com. If people want to reach out to me, um, people do find me via the, the website and reach out. Uh, there's there's a way to connect with me. It's, it's funny, I, I once saw a business card somebody had. It was just an image of the Google search bar with their name in it. And that was the entire business card. And I love that because it's like, really, if you, if you want to find somebody these days, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to do. Great. Well, this has been so much fun, Jesse. That's yeah, awesome. It's, great it's to good talk to catch to up, too. I know. I know. It's been too long. Yeah. Talking plays. Yes. Well, I miss Central Works. And uh, I love the work you guys are doing. So I will uh, talk to you soon. Great. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us in the Central Work Script Club. We can't wait until we can all be together live again. Until then, please visit our website, centralworks.org, for audio plays, the Yay Podcast, and more.